0: thanks for listening to a little more conversation i'm ben o'hara Byrne. on this friday night ahead of the oscars we take a peek behind the glitz and glamour of the academy awards with michael Schulman, author of the oscar wars a history of hollywood and gold sweat and tears why was 1989 considered the worst oscars ever why was the battle for best picture in 1976 such a turning point in movie history and a whole lot more we spring forward as Daylight Savings Time is upon us again this weekend. It can wreak havoc with our sleep patterns. We get some tips on how to survive the clock change and still feel rested when we're set back. How does title fraud work? How do fraudsters sell a home they don't own without the rightful owners knowing about it? A Toronto lawyer who found himself caught up in one such case tells us how the whole scheme was spotted as the money for the sale sat in the fraudster's bank account find out how they got caught and why. But first, we're learning more details about a disciplinary complaint filed against a Supreme Court Justice, Russell Brown. He is on paid leave as the Canadian Judicial Council investigates. It is very rare for this to happen. We look at how the case could unfold and what impact it could have on the court with several important cases about to be heard. First up tonight, it is ever so rare. Think about it. The U.S. Supreme Court, lots of publicity about them. The Canadian Supreme Court, we don't really hear about the justices much at all, do we? Um, Other than when they're nominated and on court rulings and even then. But that's not the case now for uh, Justice Russell Brown. Uh, Earlier this week, we learned the 57-year-old Harper appointee to the court was on paid leave of absence and under investigation by the Canadian Judicial Council over a disciplinary complaint. Now, there were no details... Uh, About why that was. Over the last 24 hours, a couple of different stories and a statement from Justice Brown have changed that. First, last night, the Vancouver Sun reported that it involved allegations of an altercation with another man at a resort in Scottsdale, Arizona, where the justice had been attending a tribute to a former Supreme Court justice, Louise Arbour. The Sun story, says a 31-year-old Philadelphia man, Jonathan Crump, claims Brown was in the hotel's lounge around 11 a.m. when other members of Crump's group invited him to sit at their table. The judge, that is. Crump then says Brown followed them back to their room and was allegedly pestering he and his friends and acting, quote, creepy, at which point there was a confrontation. The allegation from Crump is that Brown shoved him and then he punched Brown in the face twice. Now, in light of that article, Justice Brown today issued a statement saying he was indeed at the resort, had indeed sat with that group when invited, but was attacked without warning or provocation. He says, quote, the account Mr. Crump has provided to the press is demonstrably false. Approximately one hour after the assault, he called police and an apparent attempt to avoid facing the consequences of assaulting me. He falsely described me as the instigator. The evidence I provided to the counsel corroborates my account of the incident. Police were indeed called, no charges have been laid, but with a series of important cases coming up to be heard by the Supreme Court, the incidents and Brown's absence while it is investigated, while this incident is investigated, will potentially have some broader potential implications here. So joining me now to unpack all of this is Errol Mendez. He's a professor of constitutional and international law at the University of Ottawa, and he uh, is with us now. Professor Mendez, thank you.
1: You're very welcome.
0: Now, these are excessively rare circumstances that Justice Brown finds himself in right now, are they not?
1: There are. And unfortunately, because he is on the very top Supreme Court in this country, it is consequential, even though from looking at some of the details of this complaint, it may seem inconsequential, but the fact that he is a member of our top court makes it consequential.
0: Tell me a bit about the circumstances as we know them. We understand from both uh, the the gentleman in the u s who's who's made these allegations and Justice Brown himself that there was uh some sort of coming together at a bar at a at a at a resort in Scottsdale, Arizona. beyond that, the stories differ, but it seems there was an altercation
1: well as a and a- solicitor and therefore an office of the court yes. I'm urging caution from everyone to basically allow the process at the Canadian Judicial Council to play out because, as you've just said, there have been conflicting versions of what happened. And on one hand, you have um, the complainant basically saying there was a sufficient altercation and other issues connected with it that it merited a complaint. On the other hand, you had the, the response by Justice Brown basically giving his version of the story and saying, that the other side was essentially false. So we absolutely have to let the process play out. But whatever is the outcome, it is very significant that we have a member of our talk code being the subject of such a complaint.
0: Were you at all surprised that it took the fact that there was an asterisk beside his name in a recent ruling that led people to believe he mightn't have been involved in the ruling, um, or at least the writing up of the conclusions, that to, to for the public to understand that this was going on?
1: Well, as you as you know, that when this sort of complaint happens with a member of the top court, it's then the duty of the Chief Justice, Justice Wagner, to basically say, I have to make a decision here. Uh, I can't just basically make up a decision as to whether it's justified or not. I have to pa- pass it over to a body which oversees such complaints, which are based either on uh, incapacity or misconduct. Those are the two grounds. And they have a very detailed process to go through. So given all those uh, necessary requirements, it was really, really hard and very difficult task on the part of the chief justice to decide, what do I do in terms of uh, alerting the public that something has happened? And so therefore, at minimum, I should ask um, the justice to have a leave of absence. So I think he he actually had the hardest task to fulfill in this situation. What will the council then be looking into? As I mentioned, the council has a very detailed process. The first process is with the complaint being put forward. And if the council feels that it's not vexatious or spurious, Mm -hmm. they actually do have the power then to pass it to the subject matter of the complaint to give his comments. That has happened already, which shows that there is substance to the potential for carrying on with the process. After that, you have then the decision whether or not, based on the further investigations by Justice Hickson, who is now heading up this investigation, to refer it to a panel, which will examine it even further and may, if necessary, even have an investigation by somebody who's not connected with either party. And ultimately, then you would have then a decision to be made As to whether to recommend now, unfortunately, in in the process that we have is to either dismiss the complaint or to recommend removal, which then goes on to uh, uh, the uh, situation which has very, very rarely ever happened in Canada, where there's a potential for uh, requests to the Governor General to seek the approval of the Senate and the House of Commons for removal. In the past few decades, there's only been a handful of cases which even went to the request for the removal. And even before that process uh, went very far, the targets of the complaint actually resigned. So we actually don't have a precedent uh, with the possibility of not just a Supreme Court of Canada judge being removed, but even a lower court judge being removed.
0: You have to be very careful with, with the whole process because the consequences, as you point out, could be could be severe for Justice Brown.
1: Right. However, um, I should mention, and this um, I think should be known more more widely, there is a bill before Parliament, it's called Bill 9, where there was a re- recognition that this very stark result of either dismissing the complaint or re- moving towards a request for removal right. is not adequate. And the, there's a bill before Parliament, Bill 9, which basically tries to say, should we have an intermediate sort of remedy where there's an apology or whether the the absence is continued for a certain period of time. So that's actually before Parliament. And it, this this situation actually really shows that it is needed. So hopefully, all parties in Parliament, I gather there is some consensus that this should pass. So that should happen very quickly. I'm not sure whether it would apply to this situation if it is passed, but it's needed, put it that way
0: yeah it seems very all or nothing at this point in time when it comes to the decisions that the the impact on on the justice themselves
1: well absolutely and again i really think it's important for me to tell people not to prejudge because as i've just mentioned there are conflicting statements as to what actually occurred and we really need the process to continue to have those who are independent of either party to investigate to find out if there is substance and what then should be the result of whatever is found out to be of substance. And, and keep in mind, there have been instances in the past where once an investigation has occurred and there may be some element of substance, it could be in the interest of maintaining the independence of the judiciary and the public trust in our judiciary that it doesn't go any further. So, that is actually a possibility now, right now, even without Bill 9 passing Parliament. So, that is a possibility too. How
0: long could this take uh, overall? And, and there are a lot of big cases coming up that he will
1: likely not be hearing. Well, it could take a long time and it possibly could take sufficient time that Justice Brown could very well miss uh, major cases coming up. Let me point to one. In March, there is a hearing on what's called the Federal Impact Assessment Act, which is an act which allows the federal government to essentially uh, set parameters for major projects uh, involving, including involving the resource industry, which could impact on areas of federal jurisdiction. Now, uh, there has been uh, a decision of the Alberta Court of Appeal, which essentially uh, regarded this act as a form of existential threat to provinces controlling their own resources. And that's the reason why it, is, it will be heard before the Supreme Court of Canada. Now, there is absolutely no doubt that in that hearing, Justice Brown would have been a major contributor to the discussion, as he has been, uh, for example, in, in the last major case involving a division of powers between federal and provincial government, including in Alberta, where he was a very strong discussant in the gas tax case, for example. And so for that reason, the fact that he is absent could be very crucial. Now, we do have Another Alberta judge in the court at the moment, Justice Sheila Martin, but some would argue the fact that he is well known as somebody who is more conservative in terms of applying the Constitution, that will be noticed. This complaint does have very significant impact on major issues facing the court and indeed the country.
0: Justice Brown, of course, was appointed by Prime Minister Harper back in uh, 2015, I believe, and 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 he is, and there's a balance, there's a geographical balance on the court right between the different areas of the country, and he would represent the West.
1: That's right. However, as I just mentioned, that Justice Martin is from Alberta too. Mm-hmm. Um, however, Given the fact that we have precedents in terms of what their record was in past rulings, which may or may not impact on this particular hearing, there is no doubt that on some of the decisions we see, for example, Justice Brown being more conservative and more in favor of provincial authority, as we saw with the, the gas tax case. And so the fact that he will not be in this hearing is very significant.
0: Yeah, it could certainly have some calling into question – well, I mean, this, this is an extreme statement, but it, it would have some calling into question the validity of the decision if he doesn't take part. For instance, I mean, that's a, that's a stretch, but uh, I guess at, at the essence of it, there will be an expectation that this inquiry process
1: is done quickly, but can it be done quickly? Well, it can, and we should also expect that it may actually be decided quite quickly if, for example, as I just mentioned, Mm -hmm. even if there is some element of substance to the allegation. In the past, the top officials in the Canadian Judicial Council has said they could still make a decision to dismiss the complaint on the basis that um, it basically does not threaten the independence of the judiciary and the public trust in the judiciary. So, Yes, this could end quickly or it may not. But the fact that it could go on for some time, I think, is the most significant aspect of this whole sorry incident that that we've seen uh, happening before us. So uh, let's hope that if it is going to be happening, it happens quickly, whether or not it's dismissed or if the process then leads on to the ultimate decisions that, that I've discussed should be made.
0: The fear always being, of course, that we see, um, you know, we see the court dragged into politics here the way we've seen it dragged into politics in the U.S.
1: Absolutely. And that's one of the reasons why um, I really think that it's very important, especially given what we see now in the United States with their Supreme Court, that we should be paying much more attention, uh, not only to the appointment of our judges in the Supreme Court, because now we've actually tried to really focus our attention on having very qualified, independent, and highly reputed individuals making recommendations to the Prime Minister, and including a parliamentary hearing to eventually have our judges selected. Some people say it's not perfect, but it is far better, far, far better than what we see in the United States. And even with incidents such as this, I think our courts will stand out as a a template, as a, a model for having a a top court which has legitimacy, not only in Canada, but indeed around the world. I'll give you one example of that. One of the cases our court decided, the Quebec secession reference case, is now quoted in cases around the world, in other countries, and mainly because of the authoritativeness of our Supreme Court. We have such credibility by appointing the best people to our court. Such decisions have become not just Landmark cases in Canada, but indeed around the world. Errol Mendez, thank you so much. You're very
2: welcome.
1: Title fraud
0: takes place when a person uses fake ID or forged docs to steal the identity of a homeowner and take away their title or legal ownership of a property. They can sell it, they can remortgage it, they can do all kinds of things with it at that point. And it's a problem, it happens. And that's where this next story begins. When a Toronto real estate and criminal lawyer got a call for help in closing a home sale in the Toronto area, everything seemed very much in order and on the up and up. The ID was right. Everything, the details were right until the very last moment when with the money for the sale sitting in the seller's bank account, the fraudulent seller's bank account or allegedly fraudulent. A red flag was raised and would go on to reveal that something was not right. And when it was said and done, uh, the people who had called him would be arrested and accused of trying to sell a home that wasn't theirs to sell, with the real owners out of the country and none the wiser. It is a classic example of how simple and yet sophisticated this kind of scheme can be, how difficult they can be to stop, and in many cases... They aren't stopped. The fraudsters are ultimately successful. Well, joining me now with more on that is the lawyer in question, Naroshan Vivekanantharaja, is a Toronto-based real estate and criminal lawyer. Thanks for your time tonight, Nero. Thank you for having me. So, I mean, you get approached, right, by by prospective buyers, I gather, and, and different people who looking to make real estate transactions. Tell me about this one. This one was.
2: Just like any other deal, we do get referral-based clients as well, but this was just one of my Google leads coming through. They called me, I believe it was like in the evening they called me or might have even been on the weekend. And they're just saying we have a sale coming up, just the usual like it's a private deal. They just need one more condition to be firm by the buyers and then their deal's good to go. But we have a week uh, to close the deal. Is that more than enough time? I'm like, yeah, if you're actually for the seller side, it's more than enough time it's pretty straightforward. And they actually knew a lot more details than most people know about the um, property itself. They're like, I asked them, do you have a mortgage? That's the only thing that might delay the process a tiny bit, but not a big deal. They're like, no, 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 it was discharged in 2012. And even though they were confident in it, some clients think they paid off their mortgage, but it's still on their title. But we don't need to do a search. We usually get the purchaser's lawyer to do the search and we wait for them to like, hey, there's a mortgage on the property, can you remove it? And then we respond. But I acted proactively and actually did the search and they were actually correct. There was a mortgage that was like removed in 2012. So they knew their stuff. So, so I wasn't like suspicious of them at all. In the beginning, they had everything on point where they we just said, we'll uh, send you an email. You could just respond with all the stuff we need. And that's how pretty much the whole process began.
0: Right. And and there was no reason for you to be suspicious. Uh, tell me, I mean, I know you can't talk too, in too too much detail about the property and who was trying to do the selling, but tell me a bit about what the property was and how much how much they were trying to sell it for. Like, what were we talking about here?
2: The the property was in Scarborough. Uh, it was going for around eight to nine hundred thousand in that range, and it was a private sale. I believe there was a middleman involved because I remember in the agreement it had something like cash home buyers or like the um, right. buyers. And I believe they're like some kind of company that's like a middleman that helps people, sellers connect to people who have cash to buy homes. So maybe it's a faster process or something. Right. And there's no middleman. They don't have to cut the commission. So both parties kind of win out. I believe that's the whole incentive idea of it. Right. Uh, we see those from time to time, but that didn't wasn't really the red flag. Right. Um, so
0: so up to now, this looks like to you a very basic transaction, a cash sale of a house that's already been paid off. And in other words, and for about 800 grand. So right now this everything is hunky-dory-free. Everything's fine. They even had the new the new vacant home tax decoration. Wow. They at first didn't know what it
2: was, but only the homeowners were we under the pressure that initially that only the homeowners can do that. So they actually went to the city and got it stamped by the city from the city wow. shop.
0: because I and had to do it that. To, so
2: we had less doubt. We had, rest, like, we had less room to even doubt them with respect to being uh, suspicious clients.
0: Wow, because that's new too. I mean, I just did mine and that came out just this year, right? We were only getting notification exactly. about that in late 20, 2022. Uh, and then suddenly, the first red flag, I gather, the first red flag goes up. How did that happen?
2: So the first red flag was actually like when pretty much 95% of the deal pretty much is already completed. The money's in their account. They went to CIBC to get the money and um, CIBC kind of, the branch manager got suspicious because the account was fairly new, like very new. Actually, it was just very, very new as in like not even like a Tim Hortons purchase was done. the, The money I put in from the sale was the first transaction that's ever been done in this account. And then the second one was when they went to get the, I guess, like the, all the money, they probably asked for it all at once in a bank draft. The clients had to present IDs. And from what I was told, the ID, the driver's license was actually issued by the ministry. It was a legit driver's license. Right. They just like somehow uh, misled the ministry or Service Ontario and got an actual driver's license issued by them. And on top of that, the PR card is the one that when the manager scanned it through some kind of machine, it gave like a red light is from what i've been told like a red flash came on i was verifying with the manager i'm like does that mean it's real she's like we can't really say it's uh, that the ID is fake or not they were just um tell, asking us to confirm whether we even identified the clients before and if we said yes we have these are our clients they would have released the money in like seconds but i got suspicious because yes the the machine that gave the red flash or whatever they even though they couldn't confirm if the idea was um, the ID was wrong or the, if the ID was just faulty or the machine was faulty. That's why she couldn't give me like a concrete answer. So that's when I got suspicious. I told her, you know what? Just freeze the account for now. Let me look into it and get back to you. And that's when we looked into the whole investigation aspect of this whole scenario. And that's I went horrible. over to the house and did my whole little Batman thing and.
0: Tell me about that because if it hadn't been for the branch manager, for you, this just would have been a regular sale, right? You would have never been any wiser. Everything seemed to have been exactly. done by the by exactly. the book. Branch manager says this is the first transaction from this account. Then the PR card seems may or may not be uh have some issues with it. Um and then and then you head over then you head over to the actual address, right? And and what did yeah. you find there?
2: So that was the fun part. So I got to go over um, it was in the evening. So the door, the house that I wanted to answer the most, the doorbell one goes off and starts speaking to me. It's one of those ring doorbells where you can speak through Wi-Fi. Right. So the homeowner, I guess she saw me in the camera walking across the street, like on the sidewalk and said, hey, hey, who are you? Why are you not getting on my door? Right. So I just left my card and I told them, I'm leaving my card here, please call me when you get home. It has nothing to do with you, but it is urgent and it's about your neighbor. I got lucky. They were actually very considerate, nice people. They called me back within an hour. I would say around like 9 p.m. it was. And that lady was a godsend. She told me I'm very close to the neighbors. I've been living in this neighborhood for 40 something years. Uh, the neighbor is close to me. I even have the keys to her house. She's in China. And then I told her what happened. She's like, what? You sold the house? And I'm like, don't worry, ma'am. The money's frozen. They didn't go anywhere. I'll take care of it. I'm glad you answered the phone. And that's when we finalize the fact that it is uh, fraudsters who I was dealing
0: with. Nero Vivekanandharaja is with us. He's a Toronto real estate and criminal lawyer. We're talking about a case he was involved in uh, of attempted title fraud where literally the money was in the bank. Uh, the, the fraudsters were about to cash in after selling a home that did not belong to them. Uh, when red flags went up, the bank noticed it was a first transaction in the account. There were some issues with the permanent residence card. And then uh, Nero went to the area, spoke to an managed to speak to a neighbor who confirmed that the owners were in fact in China. So you have all this information now that this really looks like a case of, of title fraud what happens after that
2: what happened after that was my pride took a big hit <laughs> well yeah i knew the fact that the supposed sellers still didn't know that i caught on and i didn't want to call them out on it or anything but i knew the fact uh, that they didn't even get the money yet they were desperate they were 99 percent done their schemes
0: yeah they thought exactly. they were done yeah
2: so i played to my advantage i got a little like um strategic with myself and i'm like okay this is one of those situations where it's chess not checkers you gotta think two steps ahead of them so i played it uh i called the branch manager the next morning i told her it's fraud like obviously she freaked out right away but i told her i'm like they still don't know that i caught on so we could play this to our advantage let's call the police and then let's um, get them to the branch and then the police can catch them there so we i coordinated with the bank manager i told her to call the police i told her to call the local branch so that they can coordinate better with you uh, she called them and she called me back and she said, they said that they were going to send like an undercover or a, an officer in plain clothes and then uh, she called me back about an hour later and she's like you know they're not here yet there's an officer here and uh, my pride was going down by the second <laughs> so we waited and she called me back again and she's like how do you know they're going to come I'm like I just spoke to them I told them to go to that branch and uh, that they'll only release the funds if you go to that branch because that's the only branch I verified their IDs with
0: do they sound calm at this point still too. They were a little bit skeptical. I could tell from their
2: voices, they were a little bit like, you sure? So the bank just called you to verify the identity? Like, that's all they said? And that wasn't exactly quote for quote, but that was kind of an idea how they were. And So I knew they were getting suspicious. So I had to act like I have no incentive for you going there to get the uh, bank, the check or whatever. So I left it as it is, as in like, oh, just go. If you want the money, go ahead and get it. If you don't want the money, that's your problem, not mine. Yeah. And I left it like that to make it look like I'm not even, I don't even care if you go and get it. And they went, I believe, three or two hours later. And um, and that was that. They were. Wow. That's when the plainclothes officer got caught them and the branch manager called me. And she's like, Nero, guess what? Guess what? And she was a little excited. she's like, they're caught. They're caught. And one of them kept saying uh, something about like, I'm just a translator. I'm just a translator. I don't right. know what's going on. And that's the gentleman who was caught with cocaine on him.
0: Right. And they've been charged at this point, right? With, with title yeah. fraud. This is three, uh, a man and a woman and two men. Is that right? I believe so. Yes. They were yeah. charged
2: with, uh, I believe, a couple of charges, numerous charges. I'm not sure if, it, if one might have been drug related, but majority of it was for the title.
0: Yeah. It must have given you a real insight into how this works. We've been talking about it a lot. You got a real insight into how sophisticated in some way, how simple but sophisticated it really is. I don't blame any
2: lawyers for releasing the funds, not for a second. I I may have just gotten lucky and followed my intuition really well, but it could have easily happened to any of my close friends, even my mentors. It could have happened to my mentors, and I don't blame them for a second because it was a very well thought through scheme. The one of the ideas was legitimately real. Like that's how well it was. Yeah. The, the ideas were actually real, and unless I knew how the homeowner looked like, like I'm just familiar with the real owners, like how they look like in general. That's the only way I would have caught it, or if it was like a a fingerprint scan or a blood sample. Like we're not going right. to go to those things, but that's how hard it was to catch the frost. Yeah. And they
0: also knew everything about the house too, right? I mean, they'd researched the house. They obviously knew the owners weren't around. The owners were, were away back in China and exactly. they knew that this was this was a property that was ripe for the picking. Having seen what you've seen, what needs to be done to tighten up the rules to make sure, because I, I know this isn't an epidemic, but it's certainly happening more often than you would want. Uh, what do we need to do to tighten up the rules to make sure that, it, that we crack down on it? it's hard to say ben it's it's not has the rules
2: are there for a reason they're doing a pretty good job but we're coming to the point where almost every law office is going to need one of these like machines that can like you know scan your ids can tell that whether the plastic is real or not or i'm not sure how it differentiates the two but that it's getting to that point because imagine coming even if they came in person people are blaming virtual signing virtual signing virtual signing and i don't think that's it that's just my personal opinion (laughs) because Think of it this, if they came to the office, I just see a homeowner, there are two people, I'm the homeowner, they gave me the IDs, the driver's license is real, the PR card feels real and looks real. Okay, I'm gonna photocopy, I'm gonna scan it, can you now sign? They understand everything that they're signing and they're on their merry way. So what difference would it have made? Unless I had some kind of machine that had the PR scanning thing or if I took their blood sample right after their signing appointment. Yeah,
0: because exactly. you're saying the picture the, the pictures were correct. The names, names match the names on the lease and the exactly. pictures were correct. Uh, so it would be hard. Well, in this case, I mean, thanks to you, thanks to obviously to the branch manager at CIBC for flagging it um, yeah. because they would have walked away with what, 800 grand here, a house sold that wasn't theirs, owners in China coming home to try to sort this mess out. To be honest, it would have been... The purchaser who loses out the most, not right. the sellers, because because the
2: transaction is void in general. It's mm-hmm. the purchaser that pretty much loses out because he, they, or he or she loses money. They lose uh, money that they spent to set up the deal. Maybe there was a moving truck. Maybe they bought furniture. Right. Maybe they had investments planned, like contractors lined up to
0: gut the house down and build it. Overall, the purchasers are the ones who lose out, and the fraudsters win out because they walk away with a lot of money for. Exactly. Let's be yeah, honest, they, very little work. Exactly.
2: From what I was told is that in the last couple of months, these fraud schemes, especially with the selling of the house, have been going up. It's just that they went on like a span of just buying and selling these houses without the owners knowing. And out of all of them, my case was the only one where they were caught and the others actually got away with it. And I don't believe the lawyers are the ones to blame unless they went out of the minimum due diligence that they should have done. But if they did the minimum due diligence, which I'm pretty sure they did. It's pure luck. And maybe like some people are, it's flight or flight, right? I just, I guess I chose the fight aspect and went after them. Is there anyone in the chain who should be doing more? That's a tough question. (laughs) I know. Yeah. Like imagine, think of it this way, but imagine they went to CIBC and they they somehow misled CIBC and they got an account open. They went to Service Ontario. They misled Service Ontario and got an official issued driver's license. They went to the city. They use their ID and they misled the city and they got the right. uh, making home tax stamped and declared. So it's not just the law office that got them. They, they, there's so many uh, other organizations that were fooled. And it's just, are we going to the level of violating people's civil rights to get blood samples and fingerprints? Right. Like, yeah. Are we going to go to that extent to verify these fraudsters? It's the system is pretty good. It's just the technology has advanced so well that it's, we have to keep up with it and maybe we need these machines that can scan IDs. There are ways you can uh, find out if a driver's license is fake or not, but this one was real in this case. So how would I have ever known unless I knew how the actual real owner looked like? Then I would have been like, you don't look like the person that's the owner. Then I would have caught them right away. But no one knows.
0: Nero, thank you so much for your time. Much appreciated. Great story and great that it all worked out in the end. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Thank you again. We're going to have one less hour this weekend as you well know it is daylight saving time we spring forward i thought perhaps we were done with that I mean, it seems like it's been in the works for a long time but here we are 2023 still happening we're talking space movies tonight the oscars are on sunday uh, nasa is going to announce who's in the artemis 2 mission on monday morning those are the astronauts who'll be going to the moon one of them in the first flight, will be a Canadian. So we're all watching out for that. So we thought tonight we would talk about space movies, the best space movies. Spaceballs. Yes, I love spaceballs. Yeah, Pizza of the Hut. Yeah, that's a, great, that's a great movie. And, you know, R.I.P. John Candy, we talked about it was the anniversary of his passing, I think, last week. So Spaceball is a classic. Uh, Jason Edmonton says, my first love space movie being Star Wars, A New Hope, the first one in 1977. Empire Strikes Back, it blew my mind at six years old. Still love it, like the others, Like uh, also likes The Martian, a great movie. Interstellar, also good. Jason, I have a funny story for you. I spent uh, some time in my childhood in Edmonton. Um, in the late 70s, early 80s. My mom was there working. And I saw The Empire Strikes Back at a movie theater in Edmonton. And I always remember that. I saw it in the movies, in the theaters in Edmonton. I saw the first one in Montreal where I was brought up. And I saw the second one in Edmonton. So we share that. We both saw The Empire Strikes Back in Edmonton. Was it back in 1980? 1980, I think it was. Speaking of time, um, you know the drill, right? Right spring forward. We don't even really have to change. I don't even have many clocks in the house I have to change anymore. seems almost all of them do it by themselves. But, you know, there's still a few, still a few. Um, You know, it's, it all started off innocently enough back in the First World War, as they say, to conserve fuel and power by minimizing, uh, by maximizing daylight. Uh, Here's a little history about daylight saving. Thanks to John Oliver's show last week tonight. I mean, it's not on now, but here it is. (laughs) The modern daylight saving was introduced during the First World War as a fuel-saving measure by the Germans. That's right. You lost an hour of sleep this morning thanks to Kaiser Wilhelm. And while back then daylight saving may indeed have saved fuel, in the modern era, energy consumption is a little more complicated. In fact, when Indiana adopted daylight saving in 2006, guess what happened? The data shows that daylight saving actually led to a 1% overall rise in residential electricity. Of course it did. Because switching on a lamp an hour later in the summer doesn't really matter when you're blasting an air conditioner and staying up all night psychotically scrolling through Instagrams of your ex's honeymoon to Morocco. There you go, a take on daylight savings time. Yes, here we are, we still have it. Uh, It continues pretty much across the continent. There are a few exceptions here and there. But while we often focus on the hour lost or the hour gained, and it seems that the spring forward has a more detrimental effect on us. It's more discombobulating to use the scientific term. Uh, Is there such a thing as combobulating? I I don't know, anyway, I digress. Um, That of course, springing forward has a big impact on us and it has an impact on our body, too, because of the way we experience daylight. So how do you go about trying to minimize the impact? And here's where we're going to take this one tonight, specifically on sleep, because it's our sleep that gets a little messed up, right? We lose the hour, and then for a few days, you feel like you're jet lagged or, or even longer than that, perhaps. And it's all a little discombobulating. Joining me now is Beth Malo. She is director of the Vanderbilt Sleep Division at Vanderbilt University Medical Center, which is in Nashville. Thanks so much for your time tonight.
3: I'm glad to be here.
0: So here we are (laughs) again at this time of year talking about this. I, I figured a while back maybe we would stop, but here we are talking about it again. So we're losing an hour. We all know how it works. A lot of us have been through it tons of times, and yet our bodies are never happy about it.
3: I know. I feel like we just keep going back and forth. And every time we do, I get exhausted because I have to talk to the media. It's a lot of fun, but it is exhausting.
0: Right. Uh, uh, the downside of daylight saving time for, for someone who's an expert in this stuff. For sure. I hadn't thought of that. I hadn't thought of that. So what is it about, because I know the couple of things that I've always found fascinating, it seems like the spring forward is more difficult than the fall back, and and just the hour change is is abrupt. So our bodies don't like abrupt, right?
3: Correct. I think the spring forward and the fall back are both disruptive, but I do think that the spring forward has its own unique flavor. For example, as you say, we do lose that hour of sleep. Uh, we also, I think, have noticed medically that there's an uptick in heart attacks. And in teen sleep deprivation and more traffic accidents and and why that is, we're not 100% sure people have linked the heart attacks and all to maybe increased inflammation um, in the body and all the traffic accidents. I think it's just you're used to going to work at a certain time during the day, right? And you're not used to having your lights on in the morning. I think that it just could be force of habit,
0: and it does do a, a number on our sleep patterns. I mean that that I mean I, I've had a lot of jet lag in my life, but this one, you know this this is this does seem to disrupt uh, our sleep quite significantly every year.
3: It does change our sleep habits and. I'd love to get into a little bit, not just the acute or the the abrupt jolt, mm-hmm. but what happens when we're on daylight saving time for almost eight months out of the year, because I think that's disruptive too.
0: Really? I guess just because what we get, you know, what we're used to in terms of daylight?
3: Yes. What daylight saving time does, and a lot of people don't realize it, we think we're over it after that initial jolt, so to speak. But what happens is, our light is is moved in a way, like you can think of it as shifting your light. We all need bright light in the morning to wake us up, get us going. It helps organize and synchronize our body chemicals like our cortisol and melatonin and all. And what happens when we're an hour off, we don't get that morning light. And that can really wreak havoc with our bodies. Uh, it can make it harder to wake up in the morning, and it could even make it more difficult to go to bed at night. So in the winter, think of it as we really need that morning light, because if it's too dark out, we can't wake up properly. And then in the summer, if the light is too much there, we can't make our own natural melatonin to allow us to fall asleep normally. So the the end result is standard time is actually the healthier choice, it might not be as much fun, but it's healthier,
0: yeah I, I guess it all depends uh It's different for different people too, right. right I mean, it impacts us it impacts us differently, depending on well, I guess a number of things right I know some people who are really quite devastated by, especially spring forward when they lose that hour, it really puts them out of, out of whack but but other people just seem to drift right through it,
3: yeah, there's a lot of variability some of it is is our genes, some of it is even where we live uh for example, i've been fascinated by canadian geography now now as much as I was before i look i've i I was reading is it correct that in Vancouver it can be like eight o'clock in the um in the morning, in the winter, before there's sunrise.
0: Oh, and that's, and Vancouver is sunny. Like, that's bright. Um, cities further north, like Edmonton, it's really dark in the morning. It's re and it, this, it's, we have short days, absolutely. Like, a, I mean, standard time when it hits is, is a real godsend because it can be very dark, very late. And if you didn't do it that way, yeah, it would be, it would be bad. Yeah, we're used right. to it. So dark think of it like this in January when it,
3: may not be sunrise until eight o'clock or even later in, as you say, these really northern parts of Canada, Mm -hmm. it would be nine o'clock in the morning before some of those places saw the sunrise. Now, if you're one of those folks who can, I don't know what your hours are, but maybe wake up at nine o'clock, roll out of bed and get on a Zoom. It's not going to affect you. But if you're living in one of those places and you're a kid who's trying to go to school or you're an essential worker who has to wake up to be at work at a certain time, like seven in the morning, you're going to be waking up in the dark. And that is unhealthy. We've seen studies showing that when you do that, you're messing up your, we call it circadian rhythms. A wonky term is circadian misalignment. But what it really means is that your brain and body and what's going on in the outside world are not in sync. And people have shown, you know, more heart disease, stroke, obesity, cancer, all all bad stuff.
0: Beth, a few, how do you, how can you best uh try it without without going into some huge routine where you're sleeping at different hours for weeks heading into the heading to heading in towards the day what are some of the tips you 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 have for trying to find a way to blunt the to dull the impact of, of losing that hour
3: Well, if it was a week ago, I'd say to everybody, prioritize your sleep this week. But I realize life happens and we only have a short amount of time before we make the switch. What I would recommend in that case is get a good night's sleep tonight and Sunday morning get outside as early as you, well, I wouldn't say as early as you can, but at your usual wake up time don't sleep in, get out, get exposed to bright light, go to church or other religious service, you know, do all the things you normally do and really get exposed to that light because that light will help resynchronize your rhythms. That's number one. And then number two is be careful. You're going to feel tired and uh, be careful when you're driving, be careful when your kids are driving. And at, Four in the afternoon when you feel like you want to take that nap or you're, you need to have more caffeine. Be careful because if you start doing that, it might interfere with sleep later in the night. So, you know, go out for a walk and try to get some exercise to bump up your energy level and, and, and avoid excess caffeine and, and excess naps.
0: Yeah. Cause your body's a little out of sync. What will happen come Sunday evening is that it'll be brighter later. And then your body's thinking, what's going on? Cause we've been used to the sun setting. I mean, it's getting later every day, obviously right. as it, as it does, but all of a sudden in one fell swoop, it goes from, you know, six here, six PM to seven PM. And it's even light as you get into the evening. So your body isn't cooling out the same way.
3: Exactly. So you're kind of getting it on both ends. You're not getting your morning light and you're getting too much light later in the day. You know, just be cognizant of that and aware of that. And Take that energy and write your legislator and say, let's get rid of
0: this. <laughs> is, is that are you are you an advocate and like you would like to see this gotten rid of? You think it's I mean, I, we kind of know the history of it by now because we've talked about getting rid of it for so long. But are you an advocate of just from from a health point of view, you think this is something that we should really stop doing?
3: I really do. I'd like to get rid of it. I'd like to stay on standard time. My only concern is if we got rid of it and went to permanent daylight saving time year round, I worry about it being really dark in the winter. And at least right now, we don't have that darkness in the winter because we go back to standard time. I don't know if I could get a wish, it would be stop going back and forth, stay on what we're on right now. Uh, we have it for another precious day. Stay on standard time. Don't make the mistake that the U.S. did in the 1970s, where we went to a year-round daylight saving time because of this energy crisis. Right, bad. of course. Yeah, and really saying, yeah. we hated it. I mean, I think... Americans went from thinking it was a great idea before we did it to just the popularity plummeted after one winter and kids were, you know, waiting for school in the dark or driving to school in the dark. And it was basically repealed early. Let's not make that mistake again.
0: And and, and what about sleep aids? I know this is always a bit of a tricky topic, but, you know, uh, there's melatonin. There's all kinds of things out there. Is this the time where you try to regulate that at all or is it basically just a waste given – the shock of that one hour change?
3: I'm a big advocate. I would rather do the behavioral approaches rather than the sleep aids if it's just a temporary type of a thing. Right. I think if it persists and you're just not sleeping well, definitely see a sleep doctor or nurse practitioner, talk to your primary care provider, um, make sure you don't have sleep apnea or something else going on. I've seen people's this time change can trigger something that was kind of there waiting to be figured out, like sleep apnea or whatever, Um, do all of that. And then um, a little bit of supplemental melatonin is not the worst idea. I I would feel more comfortable with that than I would with, um, for example, um, some of the really strong sleep aids, but make sure that your healthcare provider knows about it and that it's not going to interact with anything else you're taking or doing.
0: I sense it's probably not a great night to sort of uh, have too much to drink and then go to sleep either, because you're losing that hour.
3: Right. I would. I would be. You know, everything in moderation. Yeah. This is not the time to over drink or whatever, over caffeinate, whatever. Uh, I do know. I do know that the morning light, getting out in the light, getting out for a walk, getting out to, for a run, is probably going to be your best friend.
0: Very, very sage advice and, and very easy to do too. Beth Mallow, thank you so much. Have a great weekend.
3: Thank you. Thanks for having me.
0: Oh, yes. We talked about what's happening this weekend. First, we spring forward, move the clocks up an hour, and then Sunday night, the Oscars. So you, in fact, if you're sitting at home tonight there's one last hour to go before the Oscars. That may or may not be a good thing. Maybe you don't care. Fewer people do now. I remember it used to be such a big deal uh, back before the time when we could watch anything we wanted whenever we wanted, more or less. Right? So it was such a, but it's still it's still um, appointment viewing, isn't it? Kind of like the Super Bowl. People like to get together. The good thing about living out west is that it's actually on early, so it ends early, which is great. Because I remember back in the day, you'd have to when I lived back east, uh, you'd be up to like midnight watching the Oscars. You have to get up the next morning and work, and especially if you've already lost. The hour, like this weekend, makes it all the more tougher, right? All the more tough. Um, last year was notable for the drama that had nothing to do with the movies. That famous slap heard around the world, as future eventual best actor winner Will Smith delivered a blow to host Chris Rock, heard far and wide.
1: Jada, I love you. GI Jane, too. Can't wait to see it. All right. <laughs> That was a a nice one. Okay. I'm out here. Uh oh. Richard. (laughs) Oh,
3: wow. Wow.
0: Oh, wow, indeed. So that kind of derailed the whole show last year. And it felt like it was a bit different. Then you think back, it wasn't that long ago before they messed up the best picture winner announcing La La Land when in fact it was Moonlight. Um, So, you know, it's happened before. In fact, The history of the Oscars is not just one of red carpets and emotional acceptance speeches and polished gold statues. From the outset, way back in the late 20s, it's filled with battles and rivalries and and behind-the-scenes drama. It's a bit like, you know, the the intrigue at a royal court. They often say, you know, uh, America doesn't have royalty. It has Hollywood. The Oscars, more than anything else, it turns out, historically has been a bit of a battlefield. It's not about who wins Best Picture, but about everything else where the history of Hollywood unfolds in dramas, big and small. And that is the subject of a new history of the awards by a fine writer, new, York staff, new Yorker staff writer, Michael Shulman. One that peeks behind the curtains, it looks behind the curtains of, you know, what we think is a pretty glitzy looking affair. To show those dramas and rivalries, successes and disasters that are as much a part of Oscar night as the handing out of the statues themselves. And Michael Schulman, author of Her Again, Becoming Meryl Streep, a bestseller, and his latest book called Oscar Wars, A History of Hollywood in Gold, Sweat, and Tears, joins me now. Michael, thank you. Thanks for having me. It's a fascinating premise. And, and part of it is, you know, America doesn't have royalty. It has the Oscars. And therefore, you know, for the last nearly 100 years now, the same kind of intrigue you would see in any, you know, royal court plays out in in, in sort of within the confines of the Academy Awards. Uh, even its origins aren't as noble as we may think they are,
4: right? No, that's right. I mean, people don't really know much about why the Academy exists, it was created for reasons that really have very little to do with awards. Awards were an afterthought. They were on a long list of things the Academy thought they might do when, they were formed in 19, when it was formed in 1927. Uh, really, some of the underlying reasons had to do with the encroaching unionization in Hollywood. At the time, the actors, writers, directors were not unionized, and the studio heads uh, kind of wanted to create a body that could resolve disputes and oversee contracts and that they had some basically control over and they did manage to preempt the guilds from existing for several years you know it wasn't until the 30s that sag came along and all the rest and then the other thing uh, that was going on in 20s hollywood was hollywood had a major image problem because there had been all these salacious scandals like the trial of fatty arbuckle the murder of william desmond taylor all these like sex murder drug scandals there was then, as now, a, a culture war where half of the country thought Hollywood was this, you know, cesspool of sin, this modern Sodom and Gomorrah, and the movies were corrupting, you know, the good Christian values of America. And so there was a real threat of censorship laws crippling the movie industry. Part of what the Academy wanted to do was rebrand Hollywood not as a cesspool but as an Academy, and the awards were part of that
0: second goal yeah polish the statue you know give it, give the whole thing a nice polish that was the uh and and you write something that i didn't i'd forgotten about is that even early on the choices they were making were already a bit dubious dubious <laughs> might, be the, might be the wrong word but you're like wow
4: right. how did that happen the first line of the book is the oscars it should be said at the start are always getting it wrong you know right. and if you look to the oscars as a pure barometer of cinematic worth you're always going to be annoyed or enraged or disappointed because the Oscars are how the industry views itself and what image they want to project. You know, the Academy is a body of people who work on the movies. And so their taste in things is, uh, you know, susceptible to all sorts of, of other influences besides
0: sheer quality. It was, it was always, I mean, I think that, I mean, this conversation has been going on for a really long time about, about why is it that Hollywood sees what it sees in its own awards? And it, it, I, I guess it often, the Academy Awards is sort of the, the embodiment of all the intrigue that goes on behind the scenes at this, at the royal court of, of cinema, right? In America. It's, uh, now you've looked into some, some years where you felt it really it exemplified the story you're telling. Uh, tell me a bit about why you chose the years you chose and what happened in those years. Well, so the idea for the book was not to do a kind of
4: encyclopedia of every single year of 95 years of the Oscars, who won, who lost. What I wanted to do was just choose about a dozen stories to tell and go real deep on, you know, one year or one category even that told some larger story. So there's a whole chapter on the best picture race of 1976, which is the, the nominees were One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, Nashville, Dog Day Afternoon, Barry Lyndon, and Jaws. One of these things is is not like the others, you know?
0: <laughs> yes. That's a great year. I mean, those are all still yeah. pretty awesome movies. Yeah.
4: Yes. Yeah. And, you know, these four kind of anti-authoritarian new Hollywood masterpieces. And then Jaws, the first modern summer blockbuster directed by this 20-something kid, Spielberg. And so on Oscar night, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest won all the major awards, all of them. And it really encapsulated something about Watergate-era America, and yet jaws was really the future of hollywood and it pointed the way forward it showed them a way to make
0: that big money again in other words hollywood chose the movie they hoped you all loved and wanted to see versus the movie that we actually all loved and wanted to see well i mean everyone loved
4: jaws it was a phenomenon that's yeah that's yeah exactly that's what i mean they they chose the movie one fool of the cookies nest which is a great movie i mean all of these movies it's just so fascinating to like look deep at each how each was made how each was received as they were all released in 1975, and then
0: what happened when they all collided on Oscar night. As they're want to do on oscar night right I mean, this is this is a this is a rinse and repeat tale of the blockbuster versus the movie the sentimental favorite versus you know the art favorite and and there seems to be this exchange of which one manages to make it to the top depending on who knows what <laughs> who knows oh that's what. right i mean that's always been
4: a, a tension at the oscars even the very first academy awards in 1929 there were actually two top prizes one called outstanding picture which went to a big world war one battle movie called wings And then the other category was best unique and artistic picture, which went to Sunrise, a small tense psychodrama. Right there, you have like the tug of war. Do we reward spectacle and size and production value? Or do we reward the sort of smaller, artful, quieter movie that may be better in some ways? And I think you see that all the way going up to this year with, you know, Avatar and Top Gun on one side and Tar and, you know, women talking on the other side.
1: Oh, Mr. Lowe, I'm such a fan. Really? Well,
4: I'm a big fan of yours, Snow, but you know, there's so much I'd like to know about you. Used to work a lot for Walt Disney Starring in cartoons every night
1: and day But she said goodbye to grumpy and sleepy Left the dwarves behind, came to town to stay
0: Michael Schulman is with us this half hour. His latest book is called "Oscar Wars: A History of Hollywood and Gold, Sweat, and Tears." With the Oscars coming up on the weekend, there's always lots of intrigue going on. You looked at at some some you, you looked at some standout years. You talked about Best Picture in 1976. Uh, I gather was it 1989 and 1999. You also looked at. Yeah,
4: there's a chapter in 1989, which is the infamous ceremony with Snow White singing with Rob Lowe. I mean, that was a real camp fest. And yeah. what I wanted to do was kind of dig in deep and like, look at what created such a catastrophe. You know, it was this 11 minute campy opening number that has gone down in history as the worst Oscars ever. Well, first of all, if you look at the year before, they were pretty bad too. So, you know, they, these things kind of like
1: solidify
4: yeah. in our memories, but there's a lot more going on. And it's really a chapter about a man named Alan Carr, who was the producer of the show that year. He was this flamboyant gay producer who had produced Grease and La Caja on Broadway. And he was known for wearing fabulous caftans and throwing big house parties. And he dreamt his whole life of producing the Academy Awards. And then when he finally got to do it in 1989, he, he was like Icarus. He flew too close to the sun. He put his name on everything. So this is going to be the Allen Carr Oscars, bigger, glitzier, better, more glamorous. Da, 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 da. Then it was absolutely horrible. And he was ostracized. I really ruined his life and career.
0: Well, that's unfortunate. I mean, everyone's allowed to fly a little too close to the sun once. I suppose in Hollywood, if you're trying to do something different and it doesn't work, it's, it's a far more, far more judgmental. Everyone, of course, thinking this year about what happened last year, the slap, mm. which had to be the most, I mean, I'd seen some of the earlier stranger moments. I was too young to see uh, the streaker and David Niven, too young to see Marlon Brando not accept his, but that, you know, the slap heard around the world, that was, That had to be the huge one. But the the miscue a few years earlier with Best Picture, La La Land and and Moonlight was one that you talk about. Oh, yeah. So the last big chapter in the book is about that year
4: that took us from the Oscars to White scandal in 2016 through the envelope mix-up that gave us Best Picture, Moonlight. And that was my first year going to the Oscars in person um, to cover them for The New Yorker. And I was in the press room when that mix-up happened. And I still remember they showed it on the monitor and everyone screamed when they saw the card, like scream, like something's actually happening, real news. Yeah, yeah. and then it was like this who done it? It was this mystery because no one knew exactly what had happened. And there were, it was so exciting to be there that night and talk to people about their their theories of what happened, and you know, put the pieces together. And it turned out it was like instead of the butler did it, it was the accountant did it. The
0: it, the guy with the briefcase, right? Exactly. <laughs> yeah,
4: who had given Warren Beatty the wrong envelope. And and yeah, and then I so I ended the book with that big chapter thinking, okay, nothing's going to top that. And then lo and behold, last year, I had turned in the first draft of the book, went to the Oscars, saw the slap from the balcony, and then, you know, had to rewrite the ending to, to put that in because it was obviously a major event.
3: Yeah.
0: I mean, it feels like between uh, the the Best Picture winner fiasco and then last year, the Oscars, if anything, has gotten more salacious and and not in a good, not necessarily in a
4: good way. Well, I don't know. I mean, maybe it's like a return to the 70s because a lot of crazy things happened in the 70s. You mentioned them earlier, you know, yeah. Sashi and Little Feather, The Streak. Um, it was just one crazy thing after the next. And I mean, the 70s in general were kind of unhinged, but...
0: <laughs> I don't know if we're back for, for many reasons. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, and yet, I mean, I guess the, the popularity of them has gone down a bit. I mean, and this has nothing to do with the show. It's sort of culture in general pays less. We're less united in what we watch and less united in what we, so we can't all mm-hmm. gather around the Oscars having seen most of the films and then cheer on and then, you know, groan when when Crash wins, for instance, versus something else uh, or, or get puzzled when the English patient does so well. Uh, I, I guess it's lost a bit of that, the the glue that bonds, and yet it still remains relevant. People still talk about it. Wait, what do you have against the English Patient? Now I love the English Patient. No, I love <laughs> so I love the, the I, I love the English Patient. <laughs> just I think I, I remember people sort of moaning and groaning about it being kind of pretentious. The book that everyone says they read that no one read. You know, oh, well, was there's that bit-
4: Seinfeld episode where Elaine yeah. it, it keeps having to see it over and
0: over again. Yeah, she that, hates it. Yeah. yeah, that must be where it comes from. I didn't mind it at the time. I think it's just in retrospect, it's become not as great as it was when I first saw it.
4: Well, the story behind that is that the reason it was so ubiquitous was because Harvey Weinstein was releasing it through Miramax. And he was relentless and very aggressive in his Oscar campaigning. And he made these movies that were sometimes edgy, sometimes, you know, arty kind of movies, made the mainstream hits and pursued Oscars for them in a very loud way so that, you know, you have to feel for Elaine because she's on the receiving end of a Harvey Weinstein, you know, marketing campaign that totally worked because it won Best Picture.
0: Yeah, and then of course that that's a whole other that's a whole other underbelly of Hollywood that has been revealed of late as well that uh, that campaigning and and then you I mean what I guess if you're an outsider and you have never been to the Oscars you see it as sort of this coming together of the rich and famous and successful and they all seem to be very nice to each other and they all cheer each other on and they all manage to put on the smile when they're in the multi-box as they're announcing the winner and the you know the candidates are all up or the nominees are all up and yet behind the scenes there's a lot of drama that going on right there's a lot of oh other people Don't working you love it. the frozen loser smiles and those little
4: boxes that's one of my favorite thing about the oscars
0: is it's 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 great acting i have to say
4: yeah it is it's like the the most high stakes acting these people have probably ever done in their lives
0: And, and then this year more drama as well there's been i mean i guess we try to build the intrigue before the show it makes sense to try to get some intrigue out there so that people will have a stake in the game when they turn on the tv
4: yeah, well, this year there was all the controversy over the Andrea Riseborough nomination for Best Actress, which I thought was really interesting. She was in this movie too, Leslie, which basically nobody saw. You know, it made like two cents back in the fall when it opened, and yet during the nomination window, all these A-list actors started—I mean—hosting uh, screenings and and stuff for her. It worked. They, you know, she was nominated. These two black actresses who were very much in um, contention, Daniel Deadweiler and Viola Davis, did not get nominated. So it was like one uneven playing field crashing into another uneven playing field, you know, like the financial one and the racial one. And so it opened up this big, messy conversation
0: your sentimental favorites going in this year just so people who are tuning in who maybe maybe haven't seen some of these movies which ones you think they should be cheering i for feel like year. none of the ones that are my
4: favorites are going to win right. my favorite movies this year were tar and the triangle of sadness which are both very polarizing movies so i mean i, I liked everything everywhere all at once just fine and i think it's going to win but it wasn't my favorite of the year and then for best actor, I loved Paul Mescal in After Sun and urge people to watch it. He's not going to win. And what else? Marcel the Shell with Shoes On. I absolutely loved. I, it, you know, it has a chance at best animated feature, but it's probably mm-hmm. going to be the Guillermo del Toro Pinocchio. Yeah, we're we're of course you know in Canada we'll probably be cheering on Sarah Pauli as as one as one. Oh, yeah, would, of course, of one course. One would, Well, I know, shouldn't they... have left that out because no, I love no. women talking and was yeah. so happy that it was nominated for best picture and that she got in for best adaptive screenplay. Adaptive screenplay and I, play, yeah. I think she does have a good shot at winning. And I think it's unfortunate that she wasn't nominated for Best Director too. But yeah, no, I love Women Talking.
0: Perfect. Well, Michael, thank you so much for your time. Have a great night on Sunday. We'll be looking out. And if anything really strange happens, we'll listen for the cheers from the press room. Oh, I'll, I'll be there. Thank you.